Chapter 40 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christy Carpenter. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 40. Elizabeth delayed not a moment proceeding on her journey. An exalted enthusiasm made her heart beat high and almost joyously. This buoyancy of spirit, springing from a generous course of action, is the compensation provided for our sacrifices of inclination, and at least, on first setting out, blinds us to the sad results we may be preparing for ourselves. Elated by a sense of acting according to the dictates of her conscience, despite the horror of the circumstances that closed in the prospect, her spirits were light, and her eyes glistened with a feeling at once triumphant and tender, while reflecting on the comfort she was bringing to her unfortunate benefactor. A spasm of horror seized her now and then, as the recollection pressed that he was in prison, accused as a murderer, but her young heart refused to be cowed even by the ignominy and anguish of such a reflection. A philosopher not long ago remarked, when adverting to the principle of destruction latent in all works of art and the overthrow of the most durable edifices, but when they are destroyed so as to produce only dust, nature asserts an empire over them, and the vegetative world rises in constant youth, and in a period of annual successions, by the labors of man, providing food, vitality, and beauty adorn the wrecks of monuments, which were once raised for purposes of glory. Thus, when crime and woe attack and wreck an erring human being, the affections and virtues of one faithfully attached decorate the ruin with alien beauty, and make that pleasant to the eye and heart, which otherwise we might turn from as a loathsome spectacle. It was a cold September day when she began her journey, and the solitary hours spent on the road exhausted her spirits. In the evening, she arrived at Stony Stratford, and here, at the invitation of her servant, consented to spend the night. The solitary inn room, without a fire, and her lonely supper chilled her. So susceptible are we to the minor casualties of life even when we meet the greater with heroic resolution. She longed to skip the present hour, to be arrived. She longed to see Faulkner and to hear his voice. She felt forlorn and deserted. At this moment, the door was opened. A gentleman was announced, and Gerard Neville entered. Love and nature at this moment asserted their full sway. Her heart bounded in her bosom, her cheek flushed, her soul was deluged at once with a sense of living delight. She had never thought to see him more. She had tried to forget that she regretted this, but he was there, and she felt that such a pleasure were cheaply purchased by the sacrifice of her existence. He also felt the influence of the spell. He came agitated by many fears perplexed by the very motive that led him to her. But she was there, in all her charms, 
the dear object of his nightly dreams and waking reveries. Hesitation and reserve vanished in her presence, and they both felt the alliance of their hearts. Now that I am here and see you, said Neville, it seems to me the most natural thing in the world that I should have followed you as I have done. While away, I had a thousand misgivings, and wherefore? Did you not sympathize in my sufferings and desire to aid me in my endeavors? And I feel convinced that fate, while by the turn of events it appeared to disunite, has, in fact, linked us closer than ever. I am come with a message from Sophia, and to urge also, on my own part, a change in your resolves. You must not pursue your present journey. You have, indeed, been taking a lesson from Lady Cecil when you say this, replied Elizabeth. She has taught you to be worldly for me, a lesson you would not learn on your own account. She did not seduce me in this way. I gave you my support when you were going to America. Elizabeth began to speak almost sportively, but the mention of America brought to her recollection the cause of his going and the circumstances that prevented him and the tears gushed from her eyes as she continued, in a voice broken by emotion. Oh, Mr. Neville, I smile while my heart is breaking. My dear, dear father, what misery is this that you have brought on him? And now, while he treated you with unreserve, have you falsely, you must know, accused him of crime and pursued your vengeance in a vindictive and ignominious manner? It is not well done. I pardon your injustice, said Neville, though it is very great. One of my reasons for coming was to explain the exact state of things, though I believed that your knowledge of me would have caused you to reject the idea of my being a party to my father's feelings of revenge. Neville then related all that had passed, the discovery of his mother's remains in the very spot Faulkner had indicated, and Sir Boyville's resolve to bring the whole train of events before the public. Perhaps, he continued, my father believes in the justice of his accusation. He never saw Mr. Faulkner and cannot be impressed as I am by the tokens of a noble mind, which, despite his errors, are indelibly imprinted on his brow. At all events, he is filled with a sense of his own injuries stung by the disdain heaped on him in that narration, and angry that he had been led to wrong a wife, the memory of whose virtues and beauty now revives bitterly to reproach him. I cannot wonder at his conduct, even while I deplore it. I do deplore it on your account. For Mr. Faulkner, God knows I would have visited his crime in another mode, yet all he suffers he has brought on himself, he must feel it due, and must bear it as best he may. Forgive me if I seem harsh. I compassionate him through you. I cannot for his own sake. How falsely do you reason, cried Elizabeth, and you also are swayed and perverted by passion. He is innocent of the hideous crime laid to his charge. You know and feel that he is innocent. And were he guilty, 
I have heard you lament that crime is so hardly visited by the laws of society. I have heard you say that even where guilt is joined to the hardness of habitual vice, that it ought to be treated with the indulgence of a correcting father, not by the cruel vengeance of the law. And now, when one whose very substance and flesh are corroded by remorse, one whose conscience acts as a perpetual scourge, one who has expiated his fault by many years spent in acts of benevolence and heroism, this man, because his error has injured you, you, forgetting your own philosophy, would make over to a fate which, considering who and what he is, is the most calamitous human imagination can conceive. Neville could not hear this appeal without the deepest pain. Let us forget, he at last said, these things for a few minutes. They did not arise through me, nor can I prevent them. Indeed, they are now beyond all human control. Faulkner could as easily restore my mother, whose remains we found moldering in the grave which he dug for them. He could as easily bring her back to the life and happiness of which he deprived her, as I, my father, or anyone, free him from the course of law to which he is made over. We must all abide by the issue. There is no remedy. But you, I would speak of you. I cannot speak, cannot think of myself, replied Elizabeth, except in one way, to think all delays tedious that keep me from my father's side and prevent me from sharing his wretchedness. And yet you must not go to him, said Neville. Yours is the scheme of inexperience, but it must not be. How can you share Mr. Faulkner's sorrows? You will scarcely be admitted to see him. And how unfit for you is such a scene? You cannot guess what these things are. Believe me, they are most unfit for one of your sex and age. I grieve to say in what execration the supposed murderer of my mother is held. You would be subjected to insult. You are alone and unprotected. Even your high spirit would be broken by the evils that will gather round you. I think not, replied Elizabeth. I cannot believe that my spirit can be broken by injustice, or that it can quail while I perform a duty. It would indeed, spirit and heart would both break, were my conscience burdened with the sin of deserting my father. In prison, amid the hootings of the mob, if for such I am reserved, I shall be safe and well guarded by the approbation of my own mind. Would that an angel from heaven would descend to guard you, cried Neville passionately. But in this inexplicable world, guilt and innocence are so mingled that the one reaps the blessings deserved by the other and the latter sinks beneath the punishment incurred by the former. Else why, removed by birth, space, and time from all natural connection with the cause of all this misery, are you cast on this evil hour? Were you his daughter, my heart would not rebel. Blood calls to blood, and a child's duty is paramount. But you are no child of his. You spring from another race. Honor, affection, prosperity await you in your proper sphere. 
What have you to do with that unhappy man? Yet another word, he continued, seeing Elizabeth about to reply with eagerness. And yet how vain are words to persuade. Could I but take you to a tower and show you, spread below, the course of events and the fatal results of your present resolves, you would suffer me to lead you from the dangerous path you are treading. If once you reach Cumberland and appear publicly as Falconer's daughter, the name of Raby is lost to you forever. And if the worst should come, where will you turn for support? Where fly for refuge? Unable to convince, I would substitute entreaty and implore you to spare yourself these evils. You know not, indeed, you do not know what you are about to do. Thus impetuously urged, Elizabeth was for a few minutes half bewildered. I am afraid, she said, I suppose indeed that I am something of a savage, unable to bend the laws of civilization. I did not know this. I thought I was much like other girls, attached to their home and parents, fulfilling their daily duties as the necessities of those parents demand. I nursed my father when sick. Now that he is in worse adversity, I still feel my proper place to be at his side as his comforter and companion glad if I can be of any solace to him. He is my father, my more than father, my preserver in helpless childhood from the worst fate. May I suffer every evil when I forget that. Even if a false belief of his guilt renders the world inimical to him, it will not be so unjust to one as unoffending as I. And if it is, it cannot touch me. Methinks we speak two languages. I speak of duties the most sacred, to fail in which would entail self-condemnation on me to the end of my days. You speak of the conveniences, the paint, the outside of life, which is as nothing in comparison. I cannot yield. I grieve to seem eccentric and headstrong. It is my hard fate, not my will, so to appear. Do not give such a name, replied Neville, deeply moved, to an heroic generosity, only too exalted for this bad world. It is I that must yield, and pray to God to shield and recompense you as you deserve. He only can, he and your own noble heart. And will you pardon me, Miss Raby? Do not give me that name, interrupted Elizabeth. I act in contradiction to my relations' wishes. I will not assume their name. The other, too, must be painful to you. Call me Elizabeth. Neville took her hand. I am, he said, a selfish, odious being. You are full of self-sacrifice, of thought for others, of every blessed virtue. I think of myself and hate myself while I yield to the impulse. Dear, dear Elizabeth, since thus I may call you, are you not all I have ever imagined of excellent? I love you beyond all thought or word, and have for many, many months, since first I saw you at Marseilles. Without reflection, I knew and felt you to be the being my soul thirsted for. 
I find you and you are lost. Love's own color dyed deeply the cheeks of Elizabeth. She felt recompensed for every suffering in the simple knowledge of the sentiment she inspired. A moment before, clouds and storms had surrounded her horizon. Now, the sun broke in upon it. It was a transcendent, though a transient gleam. The thought of Faulkner again obscured the radiance, which, even in its momentary flash, was as if an angel, bearing with it the airs of paradise, had revealed itself and then again become obscured. Neville was less composed. He had never fully entered into his father's bitter thoughts against Faulkner, and Elizabeth's fidelity to the unhappy man made him half suspect the unexampled cruelty and injustice of the whole proceeding. Still, compassion for the prisoner was a passive feeling, while horror at the fate preparing for Elizabeth stirred his sensitive nature to its depths and filled him with anguish. He walked impatiently about the room and stopped before her, fixing on her his soft, lustrous eyes, whose expression was so full of tenderness and passion. Elizabeth felt their influence, but this was not the hour to yield to the delusions of love. And she said, now you will leave me, Mr. Neville. I have far to travel tomorrow. Good night. Have patience with me yet a moment longer, said Neville. I cannot leave you thus without offering from my whole heart and conjuring you to accept my services. Parting thus, it is very uncertain when we meet again, and fearful sufferings are prepared for you. I believe that you esteem, that you have confidence in me. You know that my disposition is constant and persevering. You know that the aim of my early life being fulfilled, and my mother's name freed from the unworthy aspersions cast upon it, I at once transfer every thought, every hope, to your well-being. At a distance, knowing the scene of misery in which you are placed, I shall be agitated by perpetual fears and pass unnumbered hours of bitter disquietude. Will you promise me that, despite all that divides us, if you need any aid or service, you will write to me, commanding me, in the full assurance that all you order shall be executed in its very spirit and letter? I will indeed, replied Elizabeth, for I know that whatever happens, you will always be my friend. Your true, your best, your devoted friend, cried Neville. It will always be my dearest ambition to prove all this. I will not adopt the name of brother, yet use me as a brother. No brother ever cherished the honor, safety, and happiness of a sister as I do yours. You know, said Elizabeth, that I shall not be alone, that I go to one to whom I owe obedience and who can direct me. If in his frightful situation he needs counsel and assistance, it is not you, alas, that can render them. Still in the world of sorrow in which I shall soon be an inhabitant, it will be a solace and support to think of your kindness and rely upon it as unreservedly as I do. A world of sorrow indeed, 
repeated Neville. A world of ignominy and woe, such as ought never to have visited you, even in a dream. Its duration will be prolonged also beyond all fortitude or patience. Of course, Mr. Faulkner's legal advisers will insist on the necessity of Osborne's testimony. He must be sent for and brought over. This demands time. It will be spring before the trial takes place. And all this time, my father will be imprisoned as a felon in a jail, cried Elizabeth, tears, bitter tears springing into her eyes. Most horrible. Oh, how necessary that I should be with him to lighten the weary, unending hours. I thought all would soon be over and his liberation at hand. This delay of justice is indeed beyond my fears. Thank God that you are thus sanguine of the final result, replied Neville. I will not say a word to shake your confidence, and I fervently hope it is well placed. And now indeed, good night. I will not detain you longer. All good angels guard you. You cannot guess how bitterly I feel the necessity that disjoins us in this hour of mutual suffering. Forgive me, said Elizabeth, but my thoughts are with my father. You have conjured up a whole train of fearful anticipations, but I will quell them and be patient again for his and all our sakes. They separated and at the moment of parting, a gush of tenderness smoothed the harsher feelings inspired by their grief. Despite herself, Elizabeth felt comforted by her friend's faithful and earnest attachment, and a few minutes passed in self-communion restored her to those hopes for the best, which are the natural growth of youth and inexperience. Neville left the inn immediately on quitting her, and she, unable to sleep, occupied by various reveries, passed a few uneasy and yet not wholly miserable hours. A hallowed calm at last succeeded to her anxious fears, springing from a reliance on heaven and the natural delight of being loved by one so dear. It smoothed her wrinkled cares and blunted her poignant regrets. At earliest dawn, she sprung from her bed, eager to pursue her journey, nor did she again take rest till she arrived at Carlisle. End of chapter 40